Now, we're not a union, we're a professional body, so we're all about building and developing the practice of being a teacher or a leader in a way that gives the best chances to our children. Fall into what's called the motherhood penalty. Days are far too long, workload is extreme, and we lose many, many women from the workforce. The language in the staff room was about fight. It was all about battles. Come back into the staff room and it'd be like, phew, survived. We're joined today by Dame Alison Peacock, CEO of the Chartered College of Teaching, developing a culture of excellence within a school. Firstly, did you enjoy school? Well, when I was a child, no, I didn't enjoy school. Um, I didn't like I didn't like primary school because I kind of just felt like part of the herd. It was a bit boring. Um, the, the teachers were quite, they were strict, they, I, you know, I, I just didn't really enjoy it. And then when I moved to secondary school, because that was a small school, it was a village school. And then when I moved to secondary school, I just remember sort of feeling like, um, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to act in this place? How am I supposed to be? Did your family's experiences motivate you? So my, my father, was evacuated during um, World War Two, and he went to live with the family in March in Cambridgeshire. He was the youngest of a very large family um, from Tottenham, and when he went to Cambridgeshire, he, I think, he joined a family who really appreciated learning and school, and he was fed properly, and you know he really excelled, and so he passed his eleven plus. But when he came back. Um, to Tottenham, his mum said to him, well, you're not going to that grammar school because we can't afford the uniform. And so that door was closed for him. And I think that has been a huge influence in my life because I, I don't think it's right that depending on your circumstances, your family, your birth, that that should limit your opportunities in life. And I hadn't actually realised I think I hadn't kind of crystallized just what an, uh, an inspiration he was until when he died. And you know, when someone in your family dies and, and the family all come together and they talk about that person and mm. they sort of kind of reminisce and so on. And it was then, it was just then when I was thinking about dad and his experiences and not being able to go to the grammar school. And I just thought, that's why I, I'm so passionate about everybody having an opportunity in life. That's why, that's why it matters so much. So it runs quite deep. And I applied to, uh, to Warwick University where I did my PGCE. And when I finished my PGCE, so I trained as a primary teacher, but when I finished my PGCE, there weren't any jobs for primary teachers anywhere. Came back home to Hertfordshire, saw a job in the, in the local paper where they said they were looking for a general studies teacher. Now this was to go to Passmore's Comprehensive. So it's 11 to 16 rough, tough, comprehensive, pretty much white working class. Um, and I applied for the job. Mm. And when I got my timetable, because I'd been trained to teach primary, they were like, well, you can teach anything, can't you? So I'd got year seven, eight, nine, and I'd got a timetable of English, bit of math, smart, drama, ran the library. I mean, honestly, it was ridiculous. And it was a really, really tough first year but also a brilliant first year because I learnt so so much mm. 
most of the classes I had a really good relationship with them. It was really exciting. I was I was keen to display their work because I'd been trained as a primary teacher, mm. and they loved that. They loved that whole kind of sense of being recognised. Um, I volunteered to teach drama in the local primary school one lunchtime a week just because I wanted to keep up with primary children. You know, I've always been a bit of a keen bean. But there was one particular class um, which I only taught on a Tuesday for the last forty minutes of the day. And this class led me to dread Tuesdays with a passion, particularly mm. the last lesson of the day, because I was told on my timetable, it said silent reading with year eight in this particular class, silent reading. So when I first met them, the first time I met them, I naively thought, oh, well, all I need to do is just say to the students, well, get out your books and we're going to sit and read. I Perfect. thought it was going to be a nice, quiet time. <laughs> for that last 40 minutes on a Tuesday. Turns out they didn't actually have a book, any of them really. Um, and there were some books at the back of the classroom. There was a tatty old shelf, some books. And I had said to them, <laughs> we're going to be doing silent reading. If you don't have a book with you today, you might like to choose a book from the back of the classroom. At which point, every single child got up and bundled to the back of the classroom. <laughs> so desks and chairs were flying out the way. And I was just at the front going, <laughs> and I never, ever, the whole year that I was in that cl that school, I never got that class where I wanted them. I, I tried so many different things that would span a 40-minute period that could, you know, capture their attention, but they, were, they weren't having any of it, you know. Um, and there was one particular student in this class called Josephine. I mean, she's six in the mind. It's a bizarre name, but there we are. This is... And she was bigger than me. And she was very angry with the world and she wasn't going to do anything that anybody wanted. And so whatever the activity was, she would argue about it or she hadn't got a pen or she hadn't got a book or she wasn't going to sit here or she didn't want to be next to this. But I mean, and I just remember the whole year kind of thinking, you know, when you've got one child in your class and you, you plan the whole lesson around. So I would plan the whole lesson around what might captivate Josephine mm. to get her to be with me. Never worked. And then at the end of that year, I was leaving to get married. And I remember I was walking down the corridor and Josephine came up to me and she went, Oh, miss. And I was like, yes, Josephine. She went, you leaving? And I said, well, yes, you know, I'm, I'm moving to get married. And she was like, oh, you're one of the good ones. You know, why are you going? And it went through my head to sort of say, because of kids like you, Josephine. <laughs> but I didn't. I just sort of, uh, I, I said, oh, well, you know moving to get married and it's going to... the following week just literally days before I left the school um, she came and found me again she got some friends with her and she bought me a present and it was uh, and I unwrapped it in front of her and it was a fruit bowl and some small sort of dessert dishes um, and I've still got them and it was just so poignant that here was this child that I'd been in my mind I'd been battling with for a year but clearly in her mind those battles had been interactions that she'd quite valued mm. <laughs> and she didn't want me to go. And it's children in schools like that that teach you so much about the value of education because they haven't got anything. They don't have good relationships with many people and so any relationship they have with you, even if it's a difficult one, is a valued one in their in their minds. If If you are calm and kind and keep on coming back, which is what I did every week. I would be trying to think, what else can I do? 
So it taught me just that one example. I mean, there were many, many, many examples in that first year of teaching, but taught me so much about the value of relationships, of listening, of trying to find connections. And my whole teaching career has been about how do you find a way through for every learner? Not what's wrong with a learner. How do you find a way through as a teacher to connect with them? And you're hooked then? Yeah. After that first year, you know that's what I want to do for the rest of my life? Yeah, I mean, I was exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got a wedding to go to and all the rest of it. But I absolutely um, love teaching. I always love teaching. And even in that first year when I was dreading Tuesdays, that didn't mean that I was dreading Wednesdays. Mm. Um, So they were always good things. They were exciting things. And I love being in the company of young people. Mm. So just things like... You know, preparing for the end of year show, they were they were going to perform Fame at the school, and the energy and excitement and the talent, um, and the way that you see students who come forward to be part of something like that that perhaps don't shine anywhere else in the curriculum, and and then they have their moment, and their peers applaud them, and their parents applaud them, and mm. you know, it's just it's just magical. I find that really interesting that some children don't shine at, in particular parts of the curriculum and then you, you find something. I spoke to Sonia Thompson recently and, and she talks about children having a backpack um, and you, we have to unpack those children's backpacks to see what's in there. She tells a lovely story about that nobody unpacked her backpack and if they had done, they would have found she was a reader and she was a storyteller and she had all of these skills. Mm. But people make assumptions or, or don't have time to unpack backpacks. Mm. Yeah, and it sounds like you did some mm. unpacking of backpacks with you. With fame. Yeah, I, I just think it's um, incumbent upon us to do all that we can to make connections with mm-hmm. our young people. You, It sounds like you, that was a tough year, maybe the hardest year of your career. Debate. Was, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come on to that later on. Yeah. Was there anybody you could go to? Where, what was your support network in the school? Like, I assume you didn't have a mentor or... or well... As this is years ago, I'm hoping that no one will remember. But basically, <laughs> my mentor was having an affair with the head teacher. So that was kind of, I mean, I hadn't, I don't think I really appreciated that. I didn't really understand that while I was being mentored because I was a very naive, new, young teacher into the school. Mm-hmm. But that was what was going on, which meant that um, I, I guess she was good in the sense that Anything that she felt needed to be there to support me was was carried through because she had kind of influence yeah. <laughs> at the highest level. <laughs> um, I, but when I try and think about what that, that might be, I don't know. I, I just felt I felt protected by my mentor. I didn't feel I didn't feel vulnerable in any way mm. um, because there were some pretty hard bitten staff that had been there a very long time, and their view was. You know, they'd they'd grown quite cynical. So the atmosphere Mm. in the staff room, well, all the language in the staff room was about fight. It was all about battles. So all of the language was about up guard and atom, off we go, you know, us against them, to come back into the staff room. No no students were allowed in the staff room. Come back into the staff room and it'd be like, survived. Mm. That was all of the, all of the language was about survival. So as a new teacher coming in, I mean, even to the extent 
that at the end of my first term, there'd been a new head of department that had come in. I think he, he was the head of the science department. And he dared to be keen. Okay, so he dared to be keen. He was into his career, um, had all sorts of ideas mm. about how we could, you know, make teaching even better. At the staff party, at the Christmas staff party, he was hung by his ankles out of the window of the staff room, like, don't come round here with your ideas. So um, I felt quite safe because I had this mentor that was... <laughs> Well-connected, shall we say. <laughs> she was well-connected. Mm. <laughs> so your advice then for for two groups of people, so for leaders who maybe have these... these um, aspirations for the way education is moving and then potentially for teachers like the example of the gentleman you gave keen teachers first of all what should leaders do to to implement that change and then what should teachers do if they've got ideas that they want to try out yeah so I think I absolutely think that to be a teacher we need to be celebrating professionalism we need to be celebrating a thirst for knowledge a kind of restlessness about how do we improve our classroom practice and that's exactly why the Chartered College of Teaching exists. It's about how do we support those teachers because they will become expert teachers. Mm. And if they if they do, unfortunately, come into a climate that is less receptive for those kind of things, we're also trying to work with leaders and others to see how do we create the culture where ideas flourish. Because we have to, it strikes me, unless we want to have a series of robots leading our schools, we need, to, we need to encourage individuality in the same way that we do with our classrooms. People, I, I can think of many teachers who I know who have initiative and want to make a change and are happy to go above and beyond. And just to draw a comparison with, with your life a little bit, you had your first daughter and had seven years away from the classroom, but didn't put your feet up and watch Netflix in an evening didn't exist then (laughs) (laughs) and I don't think you would have if it had have existed what what did you do instead yeah so I was fortunate enough that I was able to do a master's at Cambridge now I was reading for example about my eldest daughter Catherine was very very precise and she would get we had a big tin of farm animals and her favorite game at one point when she was about 18 months old was to get the farm animals and just line them all up and if one of them fell over, that was really frustrating because she needed them all to be in a perfect line. Mm-hmm. And you sort of read about those behaviours and think, well, what's going on there? And, mm-hmm. and why, why, are these, why do these things matter so much at this particular point? And I just think if you don't understand that, you might very well just sweep them away. And mm-hmm. then that ends up in a big old tantrum and then there's tears and before bedtime. Whereas if you understand that this is a process that she needs to go through, so that she can move on to the next thing that she's mm. interested in and you appreciate that and you respond to the child, you're probably going to be a much better teacher. But also, I, I now, when I look back, I don't have any regrets about my children. I don't, as adults, I don't think, oh, if only I'd spent more time with them when they were little, maybe mm. they wouldn't now be doing this inconvenient thing. I mean, it's just <laughs> people grow and develop in different ways. Mm. We have that. So my son is seven and he likes lining things up. So he lines up the cars and what appears to be a traffic jam to me, but that's what he likes to do. And then my daughter's three and she'll line up dinosaurs and they have to be just so. And dinosaurs don't balance that well. So we have lots of dinosaurs that are falling over and, and have to go the right yeah. way. But we're lucky. My wife's an early years teacher and she will often tell me 
and she goes and supports in, in early years classrooms at the moment. And one of the things she's always saying to people is like your construction area. Don't have that on your carpet where a child creates a construction. It's going to be then, cleared away. Yeah, yeah. oh, it's no, break time no. now, so we need to clear it away. No. It needs to be a space that yeah. can, we can come back to and then they can spend time and invest in that because we there's too much immediacy, isn't there, in today's society yeah. of, oh, it's gone now, move on to the next thing. Well, I at want the to adult's focus convenience. At the adult's convenience, yeah. But there were so many things that um, we do because we think we're the adults and we need to be in control, whether we're the parents or the teachers. Mm. And actually, if we were to respect the learner and the environment that they're in and the, and the task that they're engaged in, we wouldn't be rushing them to stop this, now do that. Mm. Um one of the one of the children I use this when I'm when I'm giving talks. I've got a photograph of a child, and there was a there was an exchange on social media post the first huge lockdown, and a parent posted um, that her seven year old son had come home from school, and he'd said, "Mum, the problem with schools is they're just not bendy enough." And you and you you know I I mean I read that and I thought I know exactly what yeah. you mean. It's not you can't get up and just go to the window because something interesting has happened mm. because you need to be facing this and you can't just go to the loo or get a sandwich you have to be and you can't learn later because you're interested in doing something else right now mm. it, now I, i'm not advocating for schools to become bendy but i what i am i am advocating for is for teachers to tune in and recognize the needs of their students and their children and Absolutely. when they can do that within constraints but when they can do that the chances are the learning would be far more productive and leaders allowing time for that to happen, so not being tied to that curriculum. Yeah, teachers need bendy time as well. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first, uh, we used to do a guided reading carousel, and the first uh, week of the term, I'd kind of, it would look like I was doing guided reading, but what I was really doing was finding out about the children. Mm. What, what, who do you live with? What, what do you like to do in the evenings? What do you do at the weekend? Uh, and that was a lovely opportunity for me just to get to know them a little bit so I could cater my teaching around their interests. Yeah. I mean, I used to start the school day when I was teaching Key Stage 2 with half an hour of independent time. Mm. And the children could choose whatever they wanted to do. So this was a year um, year six class. I had them for two years, so year five and then year six. And the first half an hour of the day, they could be engaged in building something they, and they could leave that model on the side and come back to it mm. the next day. They might be reading. They could be whatever they wanted to do for that first half an hour. And then when it came to, I don't know, half past nine or whatever time it was, and I said, okay, it's time to put things away and we're going to start now, they were ready because they'd been able to kind of decompress from whatever had happened at home. Mm. Um, they were doing something that was motivating to them. It was a reason to come into the classroom and get on with learning. And then we were ready to learn. But I suspect if I'd have done that during an offset inspection, it perhaps wouldn't have been understood. It would have looked like mm. kind of unpurposeful activity. But it was deeply purposeful, actually. I can already tell you're the type of person who's more than happy to say, I don't agree with that. I know we've always done it like this, but let's try a different way. And that, that's how we potentially improve. And not all of the ideas will work, but let's give it a go. Have you got examples of, of when you've done that in schools? So I think it's really important to say that um, I'm driven by a vision about, uh, about children and how children learn. And so principles of what give me the courage that I need to speak out. Um, so I believe that all children should have the opportunity to enjoy school, to be, to feel comfortable, to feel safe, but also to have limitless opportunities to try new things. Mm. 
And so when I became a head teacher of a school that was in special measures, I was told, you know, you've got to improve the school within three months or it's going to close. It had been in special measures for three years. Everybody was terrified. The staff were terrified. The children were all behaving like robots, apart from the few that were throwing chairs and generally acting out. <laughs> and I guess the kind of expectation was that I would go into that school, never being, never having been ahead before, that I would go into that school and that I would do more of the same and it would be more monitoring and more checking and more telling people how to do things mm. so that we could improve. But I'd been involved in um, the Learning Without Limits research study at the University of Cambridge. So as a teacher, as a deputy head, my classroom had been studied by academics. And what they were looking for was... Uh, they were looking at teachers who were teaching without labelling children. There were nine of us. I was one of those teachers in that particular school. And I guess the courage of being part of that research study, of having transcripts of, of teaching that I was doing and then researchers pouring over it and then meeting at the university to say, well, what were you trying to do here? and What was going on there? It just built my confidence, my sense of collective purpose about why children learn, how children learn, and what we might do about it. So going into that school, far from saying to everybody, right, just sit up straight and do what you're told, it was much more about, I said, we're going to create a listening school. This is going to be a school where everybody's opinion is valued. And that was listening to the children, but it was also listening to the teachers, to the um, ancillary staff, to the kitchen staff, to everybody and the wider community. And so creating that environment meant that I felt as if my job, even though I'd got an HMI visit pending where they were going to come and look at progress, was to fire up the imagination of these children who were so suppressed. Hmm. And so one of the first things we did was... Um, the school looked absolutely kind of moribund. And uh, instead of saying to all the teachers, right, well, you just need to do some art lessons with your children and make the school look nice. We um, decided to have an art week and we worked at the local college. So we brought in students who were artists to work with our children. We were every morning, went off timetable for a whole week. The children didn't have aprons. There was no art equipment in the school. So they, we told them to bring in an old shirt, like a shirt from dad. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it was an old one. The other thing that we did, though, was because the, the behavior had been questionable across the school, I decided um, that it wouldn't be a good idea for classes to be working as the class they'd normally been in to do the artwork. So we mixed all the classes up as mixed-aged groups. So we had six-year-olds working alongside 11-year-olds. So that meant every teacher had a different group than the, the one that they would normally have. Um, we had two more groups than there were classes. So I was leading a group, um, another colleague led a group, which meant that the groups were smaller. And we had the students coming in from the FE college, which meant that we'd got expertise and it didn't mean the teachers had to sort of uh, do all the planning it was here were students coming in materials coming in everything was new and the artwork was phenomenal we, we created a great big model bird that uh, hang in, hung in the atrium of the school right. and it was all around freedom and flying free and being liberated and so what happened in the stroke in the stroke really of that whole week was that we then had the school beautifully decorated every classroom had got amazing artwork in it um, we had this wonderful model in the entrance uh, and it just started a journey of 
a feeling that this is a collective endeavour. It was everybody's responsibility. It wasn't my responsibility as the head to go and tell people they needed to smarten up their classrooms. Mm -hmm. It was about how can we do something amazing. Um, and so when HMI arrived later that term, who couldn't help but notice a change in the atmosphere, a kind of vibrancy that was emerging because we were listening to the children and I wasn't... I didn't want to sit in judgment on teachers who had already been told within an inch of their lives everything they needed to do. I needed to free them up. I needed to enable them to regain their confidence. Uh, that was so crucial. So when we're thinking about learning, it was learning of children, but it was learning of teachers as well. It was about how do we create a community where learning is irresistible. You, you spoke as well about listening and creating that community feel. What does that look like day to day? Is that always having your door open so the cook can pop in or the cleaner can pop in? Is that surveying people and finding out their thoughts on things? So it was all sorts of things, but one of the things was when I first went there, there were, there were all kinds of issues with the playground. So quite often afternoon learning would be lost because there'd be a dispute on mm -hmm. the playground and everybody would join in and it would be a big old phew, uh, and so one of the first things I did was to introduce the fact that if if any child was sent in by um, uh, an MSA, they would need to fill in a form with their point of view, what happened from your point of view. And they would just calmly and quietly just go somewhere and fill that in. The other thing that happened, and then I would go through it with them and listen to their what what, what was happening. That took a lot of time in the early days. But the other thing that was crucial was that the staff who were on the playground at lunchtime arrived at sort of 5 to 12 and kind of signed in ready for a fight. Mm. And so <laughs> we decided, we talked to the children about how could lunchtimes be better. We had mixed age circle groups. They were all talking about activities they would like, equipment they would like. And we decided that maybe um, that the, the midday, midday supervisory staff should be called lunchtime play leaders because that's what they should be doing. They were leading play. And maybe they ought to be wearing tracksuits. And those members of the team that didn't want to be measured up for a tracksuit decided to leave. So we had an attrition of staff. And we also moved some of our teaching assistant staff. We changed the timetable of the day so that they then were working on the playground. They knew the children, the children knew them, they respected them, mm. changed the dynamic instantly, almost overnight. Um, so a change in title, lunchtime play leaders, equipment, resources, people that they liked and respected on the playground mm. all started to make a massive difference. And then when things went wrong, hearing their point of view, mm. all kinds of things started to develop in the school around listening, because if you if you value people's voices, you you put structures in place to hear those voices, but you also then need to show that you're responding. Mm. So we started Tuesday mornings for 15 minutes before playtime. Every class, apart from um, the nursery and reception, every class would go off timetable. They would all go to their circle time room, mixed-aged rooms where they would discuss the issue of the week and when it first started because this was completely new to the way the school had worked I would provide if you like the lesson plan for that mm. 15 minutes so I'd provide a sheet that would say this is the warm-up game that you do this is the discussion activity this is the news you're going to tell the circle and this is the closed down game but then within a year one of the staff said why don't we get year sixes to lead the circle meetings and I said great idea so the staff still had the circle meeting but year sixes became the leaders and 
instead of a school council, we had a whole school democratic approach to um, discussing things that mattered to us. And the agenda was always decided. There was a, a notice board in the corridor and people could write things up that they thought. So if there'd been disputes about football cards on the playground, we might say, well, we ought to discuss this in circle time. But it could be um, discuss the books that have made you, that you've loved, bring mm. a book with you to circle time. Um, it, it was all sorts of things. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just about what the children's issues were. <laughs> it was so many school councils to spend time debating the colour of the paint in the toilets because they feel like that's for the children to decide that's mm. safe or the play equipment they can have. Whereas actually the school is about teaching and learning, so it should be about everything. Um, and that very quickly shifted the culture. The behaviour really, really quickly shifted from being one of, you know, uh, arguments being um, much more about sharing and learning from each other. And the mixed age groups meant that children knew each other in different age groups. Mm. So they were far more, you know, respectful of each other. It really happened really quickly. Mm. It wasn't because we were waiting to come off special measures. It was because it was an innovation that was about everybody. How important then is culture to the Chartered College of Teaching? And how many of those experiences real have, have a huge impact on, on what you're doing at the moment? So the Chartered College of Teaching is a broad church. We welcome members from all phases of education, but also from independent schools alongside state schools and from colleagues who are working internationally. And it's never our intention to tell people what to do because it's who are we to say that so we're a professional body and our job is to respect the professionalism of colleagues who join the chartered college to expect them to be knowledgeable already to expect them to be respected within their communities but to empower them to build that knowledge further to empower them to be further respected and we do that through membership and accreditation so we are building the expertise, if you like, of teachers. But it's not saying you need to be remediated to come and join the Chartered College. It's about how to enhance and develop and further um, refine your skills as a teacher. Mm. We're really wedded to collaboration. We're wedded to enabling teacher voice. For many, many colleagues, the idea of contributing to a journal alongside an academic would feel, oh, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to be for me. Absolutely. So we make sure that if they've got something happening in their classroom or across their group of schools that they they know works, they know is making a difference, we encourage them to write for us. But we give them the support of a team of researchers within the college who will check their references with them, make sure that anything they're asserting, you know, um, withstand could withstand any challenge that, that came up so that it doesn't so then and then we produce these journals peer-reviewed journals that go out three times a year people like Dylan William uh, is on the editorial board you know hugely respected academics alongside teachers who are really committed to developing their practice and the idea is essentially to celebrate the brilliance that goes on in our schools you know there's so much that unites us as opposed to divides us. And mm -hmm. there are so many different ways of doing things and there are different children in different communities. You know, I was speaking this morning to um, some colleagues from a school in Bradford where they've got a hugely challenging situation right now post-pandemic with gang culture. And the gang culture 
is far more important to the young people than what the teacher says. Hmm. Far more important than the school culture. And trying to understand how to navigate that and how to find a way through to enable those children to be safe, but also to be able to learn. You know, that's a huge, huge challenge. Compared with maybe there might be somewhere else in the country where the big, biggest priority is to encourage children to read the classics and get them off reading David Walliams. Mm. You know, that might be the biggest <laughs> challenge they've got. There's still a, it's still a challenge, however. Mm. Um, so it, it's really important from the Charles College point of view that we embrace all comers and that we don't... I really try hard not to overlay a sort of set of... This is the, this is what a good teacher does, and, mm. um, because it's different in different circumstances. But there are principles. So there are principles of ethical leadership, for example, you know, values of trusting young people, being inclusive. These kinds of things um, do drive the way mm. that we work. Uh, so culture is complex. As a teacher, I, I love teaching. I enjoy teaching. I love spending time with children, and I feel like some of my lessons are successful and, and they, they go okay. But when you talk about the Chartered College of Teaching, sometimes it makes me think, oh, that's not for me. That people like Dylan William or academics are a million miles away from where I am and I haven't got anything to offer the Chartered College of Teaching. And I imagine there are lots of really, really good teachers, much better than me, who, who have loads to give but don't feel like they they are who you're after. And I imagine you'll say, we want everybody to come and join the Charter College of Teaching. But what type of person or what skills would a teacher need to have to be able to, to join and be part of your community? But you do consider yourself to be a professional, right? I do. And I think that when we're thinking about the profile of teachers in society, the profile of teachers as they are judged by the media, by parents and so on, we have a, a responsibility, I think, collectively to support each other. Mm. So you don't have to be writing for our impact journal to be a member of the Chartered College. You don't have to be um, appearing on a, a, a webcast and um, pontificating about something. You could just be joining because you're interested in ideas and you're interested in the kind of stories of practice that are being shared and because you're an inquisitive person and you want to... Like you say, you know, your lessons are already, many of them are great, but some of them you might want to improve still further and you just might want to find out more. I think, um, I would hope that the Chartered College is about, you know, we're not a union, we're a professional body, so we're all about building and developing the practice of being a teacher or a leader in a way that gives the best chances to our children. Mm. And we have such a responsibility to the children that we work with to be the best professionals that we can be. Mm -hmm. So I know, of course, because I run the Charter College, I would say everybody should join. But I genuinely think the greater the numbers are that join an organization that's completely independent of government, completely self-sustaining. Yep. We're a charity, not for profit. That is all about building and recognizing and supporting teachers. Why wouldn't you want to join would be, would be my sense. Mm -hmm. There are some teachers that you will be able to think of and there will be people listening to this now and, and who will be watching this and thinking, yeah, this could be me, who really would like to be the equivalent of an advanced skills teacher. There isn't that category anymore, but mm -hmm. you can now become a chartered teacher. And to become a chartered teacher is not straightforward at all. It's about researching 
in a small way, the practice in your classroom, your own practice, something that you're worried about, thinking about, problematizing, you know, why do the children always do this? You mm -hmm. do a literature review, it's assessed, you then carry out an inquiry in your classroom, it's assessed, it's directly related to you as a practitioner. And um, there is an exam involved, so it's not easy. But uh -huh. on the other hand, if you pass it and you get through, then you feel really good about yourself. And there are loads and loads of teachers who want to prove that they are great teachers and want the confidence to be able to speak out when Ofsted come to call and just do so knowing that they can stand their ground in a very intelligent way. Okay, so you scared me there because you said the words exam and you said someone <laughs> might come to my classroom, so now I don't want to be involved at all. But there are two different sides to this. So there's being a, a part of the Chartered College and interacting with the college, yeah. and then there's being a chartered teacher yes. where I get an accreditation, yes. a kind of a rubber stamp that's saying, you're doing a good job, Liam, yeah. keep going. And that's the bit, if you want to be a chartered teacher, that sounds like a really valuable thing to do, mm. but that you have to kind of prove your worth. Yes, but there are many teachers that I think are ready to do that. Mm, and, certainly. you know, I would hope that uh, in the future that schools will advertise and say, you know, we, we are a school that would support you through your chartered journey. If you wanted to become chartered, you need to have taught for at least three years um, before you start that. Mm -hmm. the, the schools would be proud to say we have a chartered teacher leading this department mm -hmm. for parents because parents understand about charters. They understand about chartered accountancy and so on. Yeah. Um, that the media would look at a school and think, oh, actually... I'd like to interview that teacher because they've got chartered status and they are probably much more informed and, and can talk. So it's not for everybody. But I think the chartered college is a broad church. Mm. I think that route, as you describe the chartered route, is possibly something that is not for everybody. But for those teachers who engage with it, you know, the recommendations from them back to the sector is do this. It's worthwhile. It's meaningful. Mm. It's changed my practice. I love it. I have, I'm trying to compare it to an experience that I've had um, and I did some wonderful teaching for mastery training with the NCETM mm. and that gave me just such mm. a, a confidence boost and I genuinely felt like if I wanted to change schools that I could almost apply to any school and say, yeah. listen, I've got this accreditation, I can bring mm. value and it feels like a similar thing. I think it's exactly like that. It mm. feels very similar to that. You know, it's um, it's credible. Uh, it's it's gaining scale uh, it's just like the, that in the mm -hmm. ncetm approach um it, it builds self-efficacy makes things better for the students and i'm sure that you found that what happened in your classroom as a result of engaging in that study made a massive difference to your students absolutely and absolutely. that's really what the key is isn't it it's not about just it's not about you know i always say it's not about going up in the loft and getting some evidence that you did something once and putting it in an application saying can i now be this it's about showing that your practice is relevant and Mm -hmm. uh, important for the students. Just to come back to interacting with the college and being part of that. So ECT's membership is very competitively priced. Yeah. <laughs> you can ask how much it is, aren't you? Um, so um, if you are a student teacher, membership is free. Yep. And for the first two years of your teaching, uh, it's half price. If you, after two years and your, your membership is then full price, it's still only £49 annually. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't require anything from me to have that membership. I don't have to give you any extra of my time because I'm very short of time being a teacher. 
no. this is this can be a one-way process if I want it to be, and I yep. can just receive. Yep, you can yeah. you can become a um, uh, a member. You're then entitled to put the letters MCCT after your name, which means you're a member of the Chartered College of Teaching. You can put that on your headed paper, should that be the kind of thing that turns you on. <laughs> um, you receive a journal three times a year, printed journal to your home address, so it's your very own copy. Um, and then you have access to all kinds of resources and things that we provide online, events that we do and so on. So this is more about quality CPD. And you were very passionate about giving teachers a voice. Yeah. How will I get my voice heard if I become a member? So we often um, have surveys about things that we send out. So you might respond in a survey form. You might write to me or to the college in a particular way. You might join a, a, res a research study that's happening. You might, you know, your school might opt into something that you might then be involved in. All kinds of different ways. Um, Fantastic. We had a, a meeting just uh, last week, the week before, um, in the Houses of Parliament with Stephen Morgan, the Shadow Schools Minister. Um, members opted to come to that and they then spent an hour and a half just explaining what they felt the issues were across mm. the education sector. It was a brilliant meeting because everybody, once they'd had a chance to say their bit that was burning them up, then the second sorts of things they were saying were, were really measured and really thoughtful in addition to what they'd already said. Mm. I think it was very valuable. And he you know, ended that meeting by saying, we need to do this again. So all of these, it, it provides a kind of dialogue with ministers and so on. Having said that though, I always used to think when I was a head teacher, you know, I used to think, just let me, Put me in a room with the Secretary of State for Education mm -hmm. for a couple of hours, lock the door, I'll tell them, and then everything will be all right. And then you realise, actually, the real power is in the classroom, mm. which is why I'm so passionate about the Chartered College. The real power to make a difference to children's lives lies with teachers and individual teachers at that. Ultimately, what I, what I really want from the Chartered College is that Instead of education ministers having a bit of a whizzy-whizzy idea on a Sunday evening and thinking, oh, that would be great, um, who can I talk to amongst my favoured cabal of people who I always trust to talk to, they would instead be thinking, I wonder what the evidence is that would support this, this policy idea. Let's go and talk to colleagues from the Chartered College of Teaching. Let's get a group, a focus group of, of colleagues together to come and talk about this, to test it out, to make it work. So that education and politicians become much closer aligned instead of one telling the other what to do. If I may, can we just change tact a little bit and, and think about some of the issues in teaching and, and one of our key issues is retention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I was uh, presenting to the Education Select Committee about this last week. I think there are many um, challenges to retaining, recruit, recruitment as well, recruiting and retaining um, teachers within the system. And it isn't just uh, a problem that we're seeing here, it's an international problem. But I think it really needs to be, um, we need to look at the statistics and what we particularly see in England is that we lose um, a third of all teachers within their first six years of teaching. So from the moment that they become an early career teacher, they do two years within those four years, we've, we've lost a third of the teachers. Now that is such a a, a lack of resource that is such a waste it's like a bucket full of holes you know mm. you spend all this time investing in training teachers um, and we know that actually it takes at least three years of teaching in the classroom before you can really begin to find your feet and know what you're doing and then probably by that time you're asked to become a mentor and you know you're really valuable 
But many of our teachers, um, the teacher population made up of women, many women between the ages of 30 and 40, you know, effectively fall into what's called the motherhood penalty. So they maybe decide to start a family and school life, although it seems on the outside as if that would be great, you get all the holidays, isn't this good? The days are far too long, the workload is extreme, and we lose many, many women from the workforce, many skilled women, women who, if they, if they were able to engage in flexible working, could be still working with us, but just working differently. Mm. So I think we really need to look at that, and I was talking to the select committee about that, and there was certainly, certainly interest around that. Um, I also think we need to incentivize teachers at that sort of five, six year point to stay in the classroom. So our whole pay structure um, needs to be reviewed. And again, the Chartered College, we're not a union. We don't advise on pay and so on. But I was part of a commission with Public First and Education Support very recently. The pay review um, system that we have was established in the 1970s. You know, do we really think that a 1970s approach to recruiting retaining staff is fit for the 2020s we need to look at that we need to look at flexible working we need to look at pay rewards for teachers staying in the classroom one of the recommendations of that report was actually that we need to reward teachers who become chartered because if they study and they and they prove their practice and they are then in a, a brilliant position to be those movers and shakers across your school, the curriculum innovators, the ones that actually try things out, that support other colleagues, that are the ones that you go to and say, heard about this, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I read about that. We need those teachers and we need them in the classroom. So there are there are things that we can do. I think on a wider scale, we need to change the accountability system. I think at the moment it's far too harsh. It needs to be far more about how do we expect to find you good and help you in areas where you still got areas to develop as opposed to expect to find you out. Mm. Um, so changes to the accountability system need to happen. We need to think about the curriculum. So those marginalized subjects that we were talking about earlier, um, subjects that aren't on the EBAC, we still need to be really, we need to think differently about that EBAC and mm. what we offer at secondary greater sense of importance of vocational subjects, valuing breadth, valuing the skills of all our teachers. Mm. There were so many things that we could do alongside paying teachers fairly uh, that would really make the difference, I think. Mm. The, at the moment, I think post-pandemic, so many young teachers are looking around their friends who maybe work somewhere different and find that they're working from home three days a week and mm. they sort of think, well, hang on a minute, why am I still doing what I'm doing? But so, the reason they are, if I could just say, yeah. is because the job is brilliant and because yes. children need us and we need to find ways of working with our young people because they're also in the same place, actually. They're also feeling a little bit like, mum and dad don't go out every day now, do I need mm. to? So I think we need to get a bit more intelligent about where the learning takes place and when it takes place and when are the social events where everybody comes together you know, we need to have a conversation, I think, at scale around how do we support every learner to be effective and have the best teacher they can have. Certainly that flexible working environment is absolutely key to, to most people, isn't it? So what did that, that flexible model look like for teachers? I'm really interested in that. The trouble is it's more expensive. Okay. Because, for example, you might have um, the excellent physics teacher who is really only available to teach between 10 and 2. Yeah. She can teach every day between 10 and 2, but it's just she needs to take her children to school. She needs to pick them up at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, she needs to make sure that there's some food for them to get when they get home, whatever it might be. 
If I was a timetabler and I couldn't find a physics teacher for love or money, I would alter the timetable so that I'd got physics lessons that ran through the day between 10 and 2. I wouldn't be requiring that teacher to have a tutor group. I wouldn't be saying, oh, well, if you're going to be working with us, you need to do this, this and this. I would be optimising the time that she is available to teach and giving my children the access to that great teacher. Mm. So I think we just need to... I mean, even even schools are still saying, well, can you take your PPA at home? I'm not sure that you should. Because there's a kind of... You know, presenteeism thing. You know, yep. if they if they if they take their PPA on a Wednesday afternoon and they and someone sees them in the co-op, you know, what does that say about our school? Well, actually, mm-hmm. it says we've got a really um, intelligent workforce who choose to study in the evening and do their preparation in the evening, and it's quieter to shop on a Wednesday afternoon. Why would anybody mind? We just need to mm-hmm. shift the whole ex- expectation of schools, teachers, mm-hmm. behaviour. <laughs> there's a lot we could do but we have to be receptive to those ideas and I think probably we need to have some brave schools to be quite sort of loud and proud about what they're doing so that other schools can can um, take those examples on I suppose the question would be where where can we find the extra money to make this flexible working environment and paying teachers experience really good teachers I think it well finding extra money all comes down to political will if as a nation we value our young people Mm -hmm. we need our teaching workforce to be absolutely on it we need them to be the best they can be as well resourced as they can be um, to have the time they need to plan to prepare to develop the curriculum to talk to each other to gain professional learning you know it's a choice and it's a choice that's similar to the choice about how do we fund other public services like the nhs you know we either allow something to creak and creak and creak and get to the point where it's dysfunctional or we invest in it and we we listen to our teaching workforce we support and develop our teaching workforce we celebrate them we want to become the royal college of teaching we believe the teaching profession deserves a royal college i think that that would be amazing if we can do that mm. because and it needs to be part of a whole narrative that is different from the current one which says as teachers we want to work with your children. We value your children highly. We want to give them the best set of experiences that we can. And we have the resources to do it. Our teachers do want the best for children, but they are being so constrained at the moment. As a champion for, for well-being and mental health for, for students and teachers, what are some of the best initiatives that, that you've seen recently that maybe people could kind of pluck from this podcast and, and put straight into schools? So there's a campaign that's going to be um, happening in the autumn term, which Charter College is supporting, Young Minds are supporting, which is um, with ITV. And this is a campaign which is all about talking with our children. Um, I think it's a brilliant campaign because it's, it's essentially saying mental health is not the responsibility of the school. Mental health is the responsibility of all of us. It's the responsibility of young people themselves and their friends, but it's also responsibility of families and wider communities and schools all working together. And this ITV campaign is going to be all about encouraging young people to go home and talk about what's on their minds. And I think that's a brilliant initiative. It's simple and it should be the start of something phenomenal. So watch this space. Watch this space. Also, the, we touched on this a little earlier, the, the issue of educational equity throughout the country. 
and that all children should be allowed to receive the best education. And currently that doesn't happen and we do find pockets of areas that attract the best teachers for some reason. Do you have a, a magic wand that you can wave over that and sort <laughs> that out for us? Well, again, you know, if, if you go, if you choose to go and teach in a challenging area, you shouldn't be punished for it. Mm. So the conversation I was having this morning with these colleagues in Bradford was one of the things that was talked about was head teacher who had come from um, a successful school in Yorkshire, which had been judged to be outstanding, was the same head teacher a term later judged to be inadequate by Ofsted because he was leading a school that was in more challenging circumstances. How can that be? You, you can't move from being an outstanding leader to being an inadequate leader in the space of a term. Mm. So I think the framework by which schools are judged needs to shift. I think we need to incentivize and support colleagues for working in our most challenging communities. And I think the way that we do that is through much greater collaboration and a real sense of it's everybody's responsibility, not, you know, it's, it's okay for me over here in my leafy space and I just won't look and take notice mm. of what's going on over there. So I think there are things that can be done. I, I, when I talk about incentivise, I don't, I don't think it's about paying you more because you're going to Bradford from wherever you were mm. in Yorkshire. But I think it is more about a greater sense of um, appreciating you being a champion of, of young people in that space and your, your leadership and values not being questioned because why would they be? It strikes me as similar to when I think about my class that there are children in there who require just a little bit more support, mm -hmm. uh, whether that be mental well-being, uh, whether it be with math arithmetic skills. And hopefully we uh, foster this environment that we are all in it together and we, we lean this way sometimes and we lean that way sometimes and we care for everybody. And that should be the attitude we have of our schools. And there are examples of champions. We've spoken to Chris Dyson, who worked in a, a really yeah. deprived area and has, you know, did, absolutely fantastic job um, and giving opportunities for for sharing and collaboration so you talked about uh, kind of teachers sharing and collaborating are there opportunities for head teachers to do the same and share those ideas so I was um, in a meeting in Teesside week before last and it was colleagues from across um, local authorities university colleagues trust leaders teaching school hub leaders all coming together to say what can we do to eradicate the worst impacts of poverty amongst our young people. The situation is dire. What can we learn? What can we do together? And an example of just those people sitting together in that room was that one of the colleagues talked about children coming into school having very um, sort of weak um, jaw muscles because during the pandemic they were sort of fed pap. You know, they, mm -hmm. they weren't expected to chew, so they they found it much more difficult to articulate words. Wow. Um, you know, dreadful. Mm. But then other people around the room were going, mm -hmm. and you sort of think, well, if we got the advice from a speech and language therapist or um, whatever it might be, and then push that advice around the whole system about things that we could do to remediate some of those worst effects of poverty, parenting advice, whatever it might be, couldn't that make a massive difference? Mm. So I think collaboration is absolutely key. Why would we have all these individual schools just sort of saying, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we need people to work together to learn how to do something. And we can't wait for Westminster. I wonder if you have a, a quote or a, or a piece of literature which inspires you, because th this podcast, hopefully that's come across, is, is all about inspiring others and celebrating teaching. 
um, but also bringing bringing our community together. Is there a quote or a piece of literature that you hold dear? So I've, I, when I became a Dane, that was huge. And I'd worked on learning without limits and I was trying really hard from the position of being a head teacher to influence across the country. And I was invited to go and speak at a school in Chicago. And after I'd been at the school and, and spoken at the conference, um, I went to visit the skyscraper that was just next door to the hotel where I was staying. And the skyscraper for a few years was the tallest skyscraper in Chicago. So it's a huge, great skyscraper and you can go up in the lift and you can look over the whole of the city. And there was a quote from the architect that said, make no little plans. They have not the power to stir men's blood. And I stood and I looked at that quote and I thought, it's not enough to be a dame. It's not enough to be a head teacher and work with schools. I need to do something more at a system level to try and help all children. So make no little plans. And that's when I became chief executive of the Chartered College of Teaching. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and your insights into so many fascinating topics. I, I really genuinely believe there'll be so many people who listen to this who will take so much of it and take so much inspiration to, to make a difference themselves because we have fantastic people in education. We do. We do. Thank and you. maybe they just need a, yeah, a voice and and somewhere that they can collaborate and talk to others. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for your time. Would you like to be a chartered teacher? When have you had your voice heard? Let us know by emailing podcast at whiterosemaths.com or on any of our social media channels. We read and reply to each one and would love to draw upon your thoughts in future episodes.